Welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Podcast. This is episode number 287. Right? Is this 287? I don't know. I think so. I don't pay attention. No, 287 was last one. Oh, shit. This is episode 288 of the Bitcoin Podcast. Uh, I'm the host that talks first, D. I'm another host, Dr. Corey Petty. Yeah, welcome back. We just show up week. and talk. We don't pay attention to details, apparently. Yeah. we. Who cares about details, okay? We're flying at 30,000 feet. But um, how was your week, man? This week was good. Things are winding down, kind of. like It's holiday season. I'm in, the, I'm in Ohio with, mm-hmm. the, with the in-laws hanging out. How's your Yuletide? Yuletide is so gay right now. I don't even know what that's from, but I keep seeing it everywhere. It's from a song. What song? The Christmas song. That oh, that's what they say in the song. Yeah. Yeah, I'll search it. Oh. I even looked up what Yuletide meant because I would never. It just means Christmas. Yeah. Somebody. Maybe Yuletide be merry and gay. Oh, that explains a lot. Okay, because my brother. Asked me yesterday. He's like, "How's my Yuletide looking right now?" And I was like, <laughs> "I don't know how to answer that." And I was like, "What's Yuletide?" He's like, "You know, like the aura of Christmas." And I was like, "Why isn't it just that's a weird name?" You know, have yourself a merry little Christmas. It's like have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. Oh, I didn't know the lyrics. See, now yeah. I know. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, well, Yuletide's pretty gay over here too, man. We've got all kinds of lights up. We got stockings. We got presents. I mean, it's Liberace gay over here. So, oh yeah. Yeah. What's I don't figgy know if that's pudding? Offensive to say. I think that was offensive to say. Is but it? um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I, I offend people sometimes. But it's been a while just, since. It's been a while since you've alienated our, our listeners. My mere existence <laughs> offends people sometimes. It's like. So, um, so if this is your first time listening to the Bitcoin, co- the Bitcoin, po- the Bitcoin podcasts, you're in for a doozy. So sit back, relax. Oh, man. This was really a great. This is really a great interview. Um, and I didn't know how great it was until after the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even furthermore, I started reading the book. I'm about halfway through since doing this interview, and um, I've been captivated by. Um, a universe that's been created for me since reading um, Orson Scott Card's The Enderverse, which is a while back. I read a lot of books, but I hadn't been like, I need to read more. After every chapter, I'm kind of like, oh, that's a great way to put that, or what a, what a great way to use that concept. And I don't know if it's because I've been in this cryptocurrency space for so long, or think along the same lines. Um, and think about a lot of the same things that he talks about, which you'll obviously hear from the interview, how we kind of um, have like-minded viewpoints on certain things. But uh, yeah. I'm I'm fascinated by this book. He does a really good job of it. Of like, I can't wait to dig into it. Yeah, I'm... he creates a wonderful universe to build context around specific points on like 
how humans work in societies. Mm-hmm. That's, see, I'm going I'm to I'm spin straight into that after I've been rereading Seven Habits of Highly Effective People because it's a great book. I read it in my early 20s and I was like, ah, you know, it's about time to give it a second round. See if I find some new stuff. And I want to finish that and then go into Stealing Worlds. Um, just to it's see. It's nice to get lost. It's nice to get lost. Like That's the thing about fiction, right? Or science fiction or fiction in general. Is that it gives you license to get lost in the universe, right? You're not, you're not directly reading it to better yourself. Which I think is yeah. what a lot of the stuff we read is. But at the same time, it opens you to concepts. Because in science fiction, you've given away that kind of... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, dispension of disbelief or mm-hmm. suspension of disbelief. You make yourself a little more vulnerable to the concepts that the author is trying to put forward. And if those ideas are powerful, then it allows you to see them like more closely the way the author would like to say them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like if I were to just, if I explain a concept, it isn't automatically clear that the person who's listening understands it that way. But if I build a world and have the characters go through specific hardships and trials and, and, and that person can imagine in their head and the person going through those things and feel those, feel those characters feelings. When you get to the idea and the point you're trying to make, then it resonates with that person because they've, they've built all of the context around what the idea is. Right. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to do that outside of good storytelling. Yeah, that's 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 kind of like why I loved reading fiction, and especially this guy's Carl Schrader. His books, from from what we discussed in the interview, which you'll hear here in a few minutes, audience, is that um, he just builds these worlds that really align with a lot of the principles and ideals that we tried to, I don't know, anchor to when Bitcoin and crypto all started up. And the thing about fiction is that, like, it's like everything whenever it's kind of cool because if everything is fake and you go into reading something knowing everything is fake, then it's also at the same time absolutely true. And that's the unique thing about fiction. You know, I think that's kind of like what you're trying to say, Corey, is you're going into this book knowing that everything is fake. So everything that's written down is something that you can build up to be true for yourself. So well, he does it. He does a he does a good job. He does a really good job of painting a possible scenario of the impact of a lot of the technology that we're playing with today can have. Yeah, and how the social norms of the people who use them change, and what life could look like, and what looks normal to them yet so strange to us. Uh, I think, and I think when you're like doubling down on what you just said a second ago, um, one of my one of my best friends or my best friend went to go see um, Orson Scott Card, who made Ender's Game, um, talk one time, and he said the reason he writes fiction as opposed to history is that with fiction, you can have motivation. Mm-hmm. In history, you can't have that. Otherwise, it's speculation, right? You can't know what those persons wanted. You could, you can speculate. You can come to ideas based on the decisions they made, the things they wrote down. But you can write clear motivation as to why yeah. people do things in fiction, and that it allows you a lot more creative freedom to get a point of specific narrative. Yeah, I can't wait to dig into. Is it well? The thing I also like is that we're not just talking about this book and this author for no reason is like a lot of the things that he speaks to are like, I think core, you talk about a lot, like what does society look like? What is this technology? Um, what's the impact on society that this technology is going to have? Well, books like Schrader writes kind of tell you how to, f- maybe we can start to frame some of these ways that we're going to interact um, with just a little bit more decentralization on certain things that we've built up totally centralized and it's it kind of spins into how do we behave this technology is great but i think one of the things that we underestimate on a weekly basis with just hopping on crypto twitter and seeing the fucking shenanigans going on is the human factor and you know we throw around words like community 
we throw around, around words like interoperability, but what about how, you know, the communities interoperate? And so, well, let's we were just, talking about tribalism. We were talking about tribalism right before we, we started we were, this, uh, this, it's this podcast. Nasty. It's nasty. And, right I mean, now. it's 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 a human thing, right? Like it's mm-hmm. us versus them is a, is a very, um, I guess, on large scales, it's easier to do that because it's it's it requires less thinking to say we're right, they're wrong, or make this us versus them mentality. And you can then join a community easily by saying, by having a common enemy, and more often than not, that's what happens with humans. Um, and there's no difference in the entire crypto space, whether it be like Bitcoin and Ethereum, factions within Ethereum, factions within Bitcoin, you know, it's like good projects versus shit coins, scams versus not scams, et cetera. Like, uh, like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency versus the state. You can come up with all kinds of these us versus them, mm-hmm. um, like tropes. I don't know if that's the right word, but you get what I mean. Um, and in the end, you find out it's just us versus us. Oh. <laughs> but it's like I don't know like how do you get away from that it's so it's so stupid <laughs> I mean you always you get away from it how you always gotten away from that is finding out what we have in common and then coming around that common thing and getting fucking drunk and dancing like that's pretty <laughs> that's pretty much how you get around stuff like that I mean it's not it's simple and that's kind of like what conferences are for and get-togethers are for. It's like, yeah, we're going to have our disagreements, but let's go to a place. Let's talk out all that stuff and then get drunk and dance. And fuck, probably. Like, that's probably, <laughs> there's probably some fucking going on, too. But that's typically how you resolve shit like that. It doesn't have to be complex. Uh, I don't know. I... What do you mean? You don't know. Sure. Like, get, get, get 10 Bitcoin maxis in the room and 10... Ethereum maxis in a room. And, and say, there's, hey. there's going to be a fight. <laughs> there's going to be a fight. Or there's one person like myself that would be like, okay, now that you guys stop being bitches, there's a keg in the room. Why don't you have a drink? And I'm going to play uh, some fucking Bobby Brown. You're just really into the cuss words today, aren't you? Um, That's like 10 you've dropped so far this episode. I'm I'm loose. I'm chilling. You know. Christmas <laughs> holiday. <laughs> It's my Yuletide, bro. My Yuletide curses. Okay. Um, no, I just, I just feel like it. It's easy to be tribal on the internet. It's hard to be tribal if you're a good person. It's hard to be tribal with that other person standing right in front of you. I'd say they're right. There's more consequences associated with it. There's a lot of the immediate social implications yeah of um rejecting someone's opinion and being rude about it or not listening uh are not there when it's just a pseudonym on the internet Mm -hmm. and that's that's a that's a problem with the internet right like it's taught a lot of people how to not care about the person they're communicating with like Mm -hmm. communication's broken in a lot of ways despite it being freely available worldwide so on and so forth and you're you're you have the potential to have um access to communities and open your mindset it goes the opposite way in a lot of ways where people go to the internet to almost hide themselves and express themselves in ways that they never could uh in physical society because it would be considered terrible and inappropriate. It's like we haven't found that missing link when it comes to the internet and real life and crypto and real life and that it's really easy to find other people in groups that are into the same things you're into. But it's really hard to create a, to a place where somebody that's not into the things that you're into or maybe something that's the an- antithesis of what you're into can come together and try to find common ground. Like, that doesn't exist on the internet. It and does. It's just small. Where? Where's the I... Bitcoin, Ethereum roundtable where people are coming together and virtually drinking ale? You're on and it. getting lit. You made it. It's yeah, our true. community. 
That's, oh, shit. This was a long commercial. Ah, you didn't <laughs> see that shit coming, did you, audience? That's right. Like, I'm not a maximalist in any way, shape, or form. I, I only yeah. care about what works to make humans' lives better, and I don't need to follow a narrative to, to fill my bags. That's true. Corey, the bag we fill is knowledge. Mm. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Another commercial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, we do say that a lot, though. We say some. We say some quippy shit sometimes. Like, was it the best? The best return on your investment. The best investment is knowledge, or the best return you get is all the investment in knowledge. I heard that somewhere. You heard that from me. I didn't hear that from you. You heard that from me. I heard it from you but <laughs> it was also it is, probably i'm sure andreas has also said it. a lot of people have probably said it i mean it's a very wise thing to say but it's true so well that yeah, was we, my that was my i guess advice a lot during yeah. the um the, the ico boom was like people would always ask me what should like what should i invest in uh, like mm-hmm. i don't know figure it out like the best way you can spend your time now which has a much more probabilistic return in the future is learning about how all of this stuff works. Yeah. Like learn, like figure, figure it out, ask questions, learn everything you can absorb as much as you can join communities and meet people and learn. And yeah. at, in, in the process of doing that, if you're capable of getting good information, learning about how things work, figuring it out, you'll then be able to make, any type of financial investment you think is appropriate for your given situation, or you're at least better equipped to do so. And if those fail, you still have the knowledge and skills built in the process to go do something as opposed to just saying, I bought this stuff, it worked out or it didn't. We should brand the round table. That's what we should do. We should go hard in the paint on brown brand in the round table and get different people from different communities. And like once a month, just come to the round table and we're going to talk about why I suck and why you suck and what we do well. And let's see if we can find common ground. That's it, Corey. We're going to be the peacekeepers in the crypto. Community. No, no, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's a lot of work. But like we talk about, we talk about similar stuff when, um, in the, in the next episode, when we, interview Jamie Bartlett from the Missing Crypto Queen. We talk a lot about what we're doing wrong as a community to allow for scams um, yeah. to proliferate the way they do. It's a very interesting we, phrase I want to get in the stuck, stuck in you guys' head listening, and that is um, social immune system. Uh, we discuss that in the next episode, and it kind of ties into what we're talking about this episode with a world where crypto exists like how does the crypto community build its social immune system so things like one coin don't don't pop up or hex coin pop or hex i don't know if it's hex coin but hex pop up and bitconnect like how many more times do we need to live through this before it permeates through the world that those are scams like and they're not even new scams they're mlm schemes like what's going on with you guys uh, i'll give hex i'll give hex at least the benefit that it's it's novel it's oh, more okay. novel than the rest. But it's certainly a scam. It seems like it's just so much easier in life if you just think really hard to create a scam and then cash out on the scam and you're good to go. Oh, it's a selfish it's a selfish mentality. Like I'm here to get mine at the cost of everyone else, which I yeah. which I'm not sure where that mentality comes from. And that'd be interesting to know like what built this mentality of I will get mine regardless yeah. of the devastation I leave in my wake to everyone around me or people I don't yeah. know. Richard, so I, I refuse. Go ahead. I, say, I, I refuse to live my life in a way that I gain by hurting others. I think that's just a terrible way to live. And it's not sustainable for society as a whole to do that. Yeah. I don't know. Have you ever seen a look on someone's face when you beat their ass with guile on Street Fighter? Golly. <laughs> they get so upset. From? Well, I'm just saying you say like you get you feel good from hurting others. And in oh. that instance, Corey, when you beat a motherfucker with guile, they don't like themselves because you got to no charge. There. There's no devastation there. Well, it depends you don't, on the crowd. You don't ruin their life. You may hurt some pride. 
You I don't mind hurting pride. <laughs> Doing all those charge <laughs> moves on them. They're like, how are you moving so fast if you've got to charge up the sonic boom? It's like, that's shit that I know, and you don't. That's why you're getting your ass beat right now. So, anyways, sorry. I was playing some Street Fighter Five last night. So, saw my first. Let's move the interview. Let's, let's, we talked about it enough. Let's move to it. <laughs> yeah, let, yeah. let the people so, have what they want. So, here's Carl people, Schrader. Yeah, anybody A's. new that's coming to the episode today is probably here for, for Carl and not us. Yeah, that's probably true. So, here's Carl Schrader, uh, science fiction author, brilliant mind, um, card carrying futurist. Card carrying futurists. See, I'm only a futurist on the bidet, but he's a futurist all the time. Um, well, here it is. Welcome back, guys, to another interview on the Bitcoin Podcast. Uh, today, I'm happy to announce we have Carl Schrader, a futurist and author, um, coming to talk to us about, I'd say, how technology influences society and maybe what this crazy stuff we're playing around with could potentially do uh, in society and what impact it might have. So welcome to the show, Carl. Uh, why don't you give us a quick introduction as to kind of who you are, where you come from, and uh, how you feel about this technology? Sure. Uh, I'm a Canadian science fiction writer. I've uh, got uh, 10 novels out, my most recent one being Stealing Worlds, which is uh, out from Tor Books uh, in June, and probably the reason why we're talking. Um, I've uh, been writing for oh, uh, 20 or so years, um, and about 10 years ago, uh, got a, uh, a degree in strategic foresight, which means I'm also a card-carrying futurist, and uh, do some consulting for governments and uh, organizations and companies. That's pretty strategic interesting. Strategic foresight? Yeah. How do I... How do I do? <laughs> teach yeah. me? That sounds uh, like saying you're a futurist tends to sort of lump you in with the the, the wild high haired sort of profit you know crowd. Mm. Um, foresight sounds a little bit more um, uh, respectable, but it is actually slightly different too. Uh, it's more about um, uh, it's it's a discipline about inoculating people and organizations against surprise rather than trying to predict the future. Um, and I'm pretty comfortable in that kind of role. And it, it seems as though in the process of, I guess, doing that and writing about the future, you've come across the idea of cryptocurrencies and even incorporated them into your books. Why? Well, uh, I've been writing about um, a certain set of ideas uh, for about 20 years now. And, and uh, uh, ironically, uh, Stealing Worlds, which came out in June, uh, ends up being the prequel to uh, my first novel, Ventus, which came out in 2000. <laughs> and both are about uh, uh, the Internet of Things and um, uh, uh, ways of organizing um, society and economics um, uh, around a sort of digital core. Um, in my second novel, Permanence, in, in 2003, I... Uh, uh, I had what I called the rights economy, where every physical object in the world had a digital counterpart that uh, had ownership and price information in it. And once you once you fixed that, um, the example one example I gave in the book was a chair. Um, uh, you could never change the price of the chair because or who the owner of the chair was because it was. Uh, permanently uh, sort of etched in in cyberspace um, and could not be changed. Um, uh, that was a dystopia, that book. But I, I return to those ideas with, uh, with, with stealing worlds uh, around the, the notion of objects having digital counterparts, this time uh, with blockchain technology being what uh, enables that. Hmm. So how, I, I want to know, like, how many times... Have you written a novel or, and then fiction, like science fiction becomes science reality? Or is that, has that happened a lot? Yeah, pretty much constantly. The, the problem is, though, um, that I, I tend to be about uh, 20 years ahead of my time, which means I'm never able to cash in on these things. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, what you really ideally want to do is, is uh, come up with ideas that uh, mm. uh, hit the public 
consciousness around the same time as your book. And I actually have a, a, a friend who uh, um, claims that he doesn't write about an idea until it's been in Time magazine. Um, and he's been very, very successful. Me, I, I, I come up with things, you know, so far in advance that, that I have a tiny audience of people saying, whoa. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm never able to cash in. And then 20 years down the line, they say, he was right. <laughs> yes. By then, it's right. <laughs> I'm kind of curious, though. Maybe. Because- uh, ahead, yeah, it, I, it's this is a difficult thing to do, um, especially I'd say in today's age, we're finding quality information about futuristic technology is very difficult. And when you involve technology about money in the circumstance, finding reputable information about how things work, why they work, etc., becomes exacerbatedly more difficult. How have you gone about doing this? Do you have like your go-to guy? Are you relying on him? And how do you think that shapes your perspective on how tech- how this technology works? Uh, well, that's a really good question. And uh, it, there's all kinds of misinformation and just sort of pseudo news out there that make it really hard, particularly with cryptocurrencies, to, uh, mm-hmm. uh, to sort of find out what's really going on. Um, I was lucky in that I, I, I took a relatively early interest back in, say, 2012 or so, uh, Bitcoin had been around for a while uh, as a hobbyist uh, 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 thing at that point. But I, uh, I went on to the, uh, uh, the early um, Ethereum uh, forums around 2013 and uh, started talking about, uh, you know, my ideas for a potlatch currency and, and, and stuff like this. And um, I ended up in conversation with Stéphane Tual. Hmm. Um, who was one of the, uh, the, the forces behind uh, 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 Ethereum and later behind uh, uh, slock.it and uh, now Atlas New. Um, and uh, he and a few of the other um, uh, uh, people from that forum were able to sort of steer me in the right direction. Um, and... Uh, uh, it also happened that the, what I'd been talking about all along was a set of ideas that was pretty compatible with, uh, with cryptocurrency. So um, uh, I, I started writing stories about uh, uh, crypto, um, uh, uh, stories like um, uh, Degrees of Freedom um, uh, that uh, talk about um, New kinds of cryptocurrencies, that like self-taxing currencies, smart smart money, essentially, and um, uh, yeah, just sort of went from there with uh, with a sort of core of readers who uh, were able to give me feedback on how well I was doing. Mm. Could you take all your literature on self-taxing currency and maybe burn it? <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, well, let me describe Ycoin. Ycoin is the potlatch currency. It's um, uh, it, it was an attempt to solve the the, the problem of uh, inequality by having a, a, a smart money that looks around itself in the wallet every now and then, and if there's too much of it there, starts giving itself away to empty wallets. Uh, in other words, the richer you get, the more you give away. The more you uh, you give away, the, the the more sort of eminence you get in the community. But um, the, uh, the the point is that uh, the currency itself becomes a kind of universal basic income without a government being involved. Uh, and, and this is you know where it, it's potentially attracted to libertarians and, and socialists alike. Uh, <laughs> it, I, and this is what really uh, drew me into uh, crypto: the idea that you could have ideas, uh, have, have uh, mechanisms, um, financial instruments or currencies that would s- solve problems in such a way that they could be attractive to both sides of the uh, the political divide. Uh, universal basic income was actually popular with uh, Republicans and Democrats back in 1969. Um, and had a serious run at uh, possibly being implemented in the United States. Um, and uh, some of these ideas are like that, if they're presented in the right way or if they, if they work in the right way. 
So um, uh, for me, crypto is one of those areas where I can explore ideas um, in, a, in, in a way that sort of freshens them and, and, and makes them uh, potentially uh, valuable to both sides of the debate. I have a feeling that you are an ascriber to the saying that the medium is the message, right? And the, the idea that the technology shapes the way people interact with each other um, and how that technology is created drastically shapes what the social implications may be just based on your bio and what you've written about and things like that. You spend a lot of time thinking about that. I, I've often said on this podcast that this is a, a new way for us to have a lot of playgrounds in shaping the, the way human communication should be or shaping the technology to the, the, the appropriate style of communication as opposed to vice versa, which we've done in the past, which is pigeonhole or cram um, all of our types of communication and relationships into a constrained type of technology. Have you thought about kind of what this stuff does or that concept and, and to what effects it may have on how we congregate and even even transact money and what like what kind of effects that all has? Um, yeah. Well, f first off, uh, Marshall McLuhan was a good Torontonian. Uh, that was where I. Um, it, it was he was hard to avoid when when I was growing up. Uh, so yeah, the medium is the message. Um, but uh, also, my third novel, uh, Lady of Mazes, is. Uh, uh, its basic premise is that technology is legislation. Um, whether that's true or yeah. not I, is, is neither here nor there. It's an interesting idea to, to, to work with. And in Lady of Mavis, um, I create this far future uh, uh, society in which each person can decide which technologies they will or will, will allow in their li lives or uh, will exclude from their lives. So if you want to live with um, uh, smart screen TVs uh, and dial telephones, <laughs> then you, you can do it. You, you can have whatever mix is appropriate to you based on the idea that uh, uh, how you live your life is, is incredibly influenced by things like how easy you are to reach um, how easy it is for you to communicate with other people and how you communicate with other people, uh, how you get your news, uh, how you travel, all these things. Um, so people design their own micro utopias uh, by um, filtering the technologies that uh, they allow in their lives. Uh, and of course, things go horribly wrong. And, <laughs> and, uh, I was just thinking that. I was like, and adventure ensues, you know. But um, uh, but the core idea was really, you know, fun to play with. And uh, uh, again, it is extremely uh, McLuhanist uh, at its core. I created my own micro utopia on my Facebook feed, and then when it when like the seams cracked. And something that was outside of my utopia slipped in. Now I hate my uncle. So, <laughs> I didn't. Well, this, this is kind of the, what happens. Uh, the, the things crack and stuff slips in in Lady of Mazes, and uh, it all, uh, you know, goes downhill from there. Um, yeah, but uh, oh, I, I I heard a phrase the other day: micro economies. Um, I say that. Did you hear it from me? I may you don't have, say it like I say it also. Uh, <laughs> Well, and it's, uh, this is what Stealing Worlds is really about, is, is microeconomies, is uh, using uh, blockchain, not just blockchain technology, but uh, what I tend to call, uh, you know, uh, technologies of uh, uh, free, uh, freedom, you know, mm -hmm. um, similar to it, to um, uh, construct sort of bespoke economies that uh, aren't necessarily small, but are, are um, uh, specific to certain people, uh, certain groups, certain cultures, and so forth. Um, and uh, that's what currently fascinates me, the idea of using crypto to, um, to, to build uh, these sort of patchwork communities and uh, parallel economies. Uh, 
Well, sir, me and you can have a tremendous amount of conversations because I'd say that's the only reason why I'm in this space is to try and enable that type of stuff. And I talk about it and work on it almost full time throughout every every day of my, my life. And it really is this concept that, that I think cryptocurrencies brought to the world um, that what that kind of semi existed beforehand because you have the ability to create micro communities on the internet um, but without value exchange or um, value with so like value and ownership of associated reputation then it's it's it it leads to things like echo chambers or the, the communities are incomplete in a lot of ways um, so it's hard to get people to commit to the communities with any type of reasonable content because there's no associated like value exchange back to them for commuting it other than arbitrary internet karma. Uh, and so I, I find it fascinating that this is the stuff that it's potentially leading to. And I wonder about the societal impact of what a world like that looks like when the majority of the community of the communities that you're a part of are dispersed across, across the globe and are varied, very varied in interest. Yeah, and, and this is really what I wanted to explore with Stealing Worlds, where where, where you have a, an enabling technology that uh, can go in two directions and, and probably will simultaneously go in both. At one and the same time, um, you, you have the ability to, as in my, my 2003 novel, Permanence, um, say this chair is owned by so-and-so and it has the X value and it, uh, it is to be used for this purpose and stamp that forever um, in an almost metaphysical way as being the identity of that thing. So you can have, um, uh, uh, you know, billionaires or trillionaires uh, who, um, who can own the world by having the fact of their ownership um, uh, in microchipped into every single physical object um, you know, in the world. Uh, and you can only get rid of it by literally burning the chair. Uh, or you have a world in which um, people can uh, reframe um, what things are, um, what their meaning is, and, and, and how they're to be used and, and how they're to be owned and, and by whom and do so kind of on the fly in a, in a, a constantly reinventing, self-reinventing um, economics, um, where you don't have fixed relationships, uh, fixed values. You, you, I mean, you, you, you probably know that most famines are caused not by a lack of uh, food, but by a lack of money. Um, people starve to death um, in situations where there is food. And this can only happen because of the, the relationships um, between uh, money and, and physical objects are so firmly enforced that it becomes absurd, right? Um, so you, you have these two polar opposites, a dystopian world of, of uh, um, absolute ownership and absolute fixed identities, or a, uh, a free-form self-reinvention. Um, that's almost an anarchic, but isn't an anarchy because it's coordinated using these marvelous technologies that we're developing right now. Um, that's what I wanted to play with. And uh, uh, I, I, I still love this stuff and, and uh, wouldn't be surprised if I uh, write more in this space. I, I think like there's two things that bother me about it, the concept of a micro community or micro economy or, or or actually one thing that bothers me about that and then another thing that grinds my gears, I guess the thing about that is like, it seems like there's no objectivity to it. Like what mm -hmm. is the size of a micro community? What's the size of a micro economy? Or are there certain parameters that then you can have a larger size, but the parameters then define that you're a micro community. There's no objectivity around that. So it just kind of feels like this ethereal arbitrary thing that we're trying to build. But if you don't try to build something with, some sort of definition, then you're just going to be like, I don't know, shooting, shooting blanks. Like you can't, you can't go out to, to change something or define something when it has no definition to begin with. I guess now, that's the thing that bugs me there. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree, and it's 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 a it's it's a a, a version of the oracle problem. Um, it, it's how do you connect all, all this you know stuff you're doing um, virtually with the physical world? Um, uh, and it's it's a really difficult uh, problem to solve. If I were to try uh, to attack it. Just based on how I view things, um, and you're right. It's not it's not binary, right? You're not a micro community or not. Um, but like it's on the far end, I'd say what what the function of the of how micro you are, if you want to put it that way, is how useful your value is outside of the context of the people you trade with. So, say for mm. instance. Um, you, well, I keep using Reddit because it's the obvious mental model of a group of people talking about something esoteric. Uh, say you're you're like th these there's there's value associated with subreddits now, and you're in some esoteric subreddit. We'll call it basket weaving because that's a pretty good, you know, general trope on a small amount of people doing esoteric things. And how useful or how valuable is the basket weaving token outside of that? community because within the community it, it serves a lot of value transfer between reputation um, giving people um, feedback and potential value for the content they create so on and so forth but if you're able to take that and bring it somewhere else and a different community also uses that value then it, it it lifts you from how micro you are and if you look at the complete opposite scale you have something that's ubiquitous across all communities it's something you can trade freely from a lot of different places and what this technology enables is for you to build something within a micro community that only works within the confines of those group. And eventually as that group grows, um, there's probably, I guess, an API or ways in which they communicate and interact and overlap with other communities. And then that value gets transferred associated with it. There's an exchange, like there's a quality exchange rate and liquidity associated with it. Or you just use the same token or value because it works within both contexts. That then lifts you from a micro community further into some type of global type of value. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm I'm curious about whether you can decouple um, the, some of these relationships. Uh, going, getting back to the example of uh, famine, um, uh, is it possible to create a uh, a micro economy uh, that just makes sure that people get fed? Um, when you've only got one kind of money and one kind of exchange, then um, all kinds of things are vulnerable to the various crashes and, and, and uh, hoarding and all the other uh, inflation and so forth that, that go on. Um, now, various places, uh, countries ha have actually used multiple currencies, um, and it generally has not been a very successful <laughs> experiment. <laughs> Um, but uh, with crypto, maybe maybe that could be different. But uh, I, you know, we're kind of at the Stone Age with this stuff. Um, uh, it's really, really early um, years uh, to, to, to speculate about all of this stuff right now. Um, but that's you know what makes it so much fun. Certainly, I definitely see it as you broaden the scope of what something is useful for, um, and incorporate more and more different types of people with different motivations, um, the way they gain the system and the way they operate uh, tends to create um, a larger diversification between winners and losers. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and let me give you an example of how um, the, the, the sort of unbundling uh, of, of value can work. Um, Eleanor Ostrom, who won the uh, Nobel Prize in economics, for her work on uh, the commons, um, helped develop the idea of uh, rights bundles. So when you buy a property, uh, you might think, yes, this is my tract of land, I own it, right? But typically speaking, you won't own the mineral rights under it, and you certainly won't own the flyover rights. Um, uh, the rights that we have to the things that we own are actually almost always tightly limited in one way or another. We, what we buy is we buy bundles of rights to things. I can do this, that, and the other thing with such and such, but I can't do this. And normally speaking, because we're happy with the bundles that we buy, we think of ourselves as owning the thing. 
Um, one of the things that crypto uh, uh, potentially allows us to do is uh, play with those bundles much more effectively, um, make them a lot more explicit in some cases, um, but uh, uh, sort of broaden and deepen the notion of ownership um, while allowing people to um, comfortably, you know, not own everything about, say, their plot of land. Um, right now, we just ignore the fact, we whistle past the graveyard um, uh, regarding the fact that we don't own the mineral light, uh, rights, you know, under our farmhouse. Um, but when you've got more explicit and more tightly controllable um, uh, rights bundles being negotiated, you can be you can know about it, be comfortable with it, and uh, get exactly what you want out of the transaction. Does that make sense? It kind of does. I feel like we're kind of going through that now because, like, I can choose a couple CBS channels. Maybe I can get a little Sports Center, get, get the Hulu shows. Yeah, uh, like I can, I can package, package my my pleasure yeah. the way I want it. Right. So and the process of that, I think, what you just mentioned makes it more obvious that you're not getting that elsewhere right for the things yeah. you're actually spending a tremendous amount of money on yeah yeah so it, it gets progressively more fine grained and, and and it also eventually spills out of the the virtual world into the physical world um and sometimes in a really bad way that you remember the fiasco a couple of years ago where people discovered uh, they were buying john deere tractors but didn't own the software um, and so they, they didn't completely own the tractor that they thought they had bought. Uh, mm. That's an example of exactly this kind of transaction happening, but, but people being caught unawares um, because John Deere had said, well, no, the software is ours. You um, can't fix the John Deere. That's exactly. our job. <laughs> you can exactly. use it however you want. You just can't fix it. Right. And and, uh, go ahead. Yeah, running up a, a, against things like that is what convinced me that the, this is really a, a double-edged sword, you know, um, in, in so many ways. That there are lots of ways in, in, in which we can benefit from this uh, kind of uh, uh, technology and, and lots of ways in which it can really burn us. And um, I, I tend to think that uh, everything, every future comes true. And they all come true at the same time, somewhere and for somebody, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, we're going to get utopia and we're going to get dystopia at the same time, right? It's uh, um, And uh, uh, crypto is, is uh, certainly shaping up to be like that, uh, something that um, um, can create fantastic social benefits and at the same time really screw a lot of people over. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Like one person's utopia is another person's dystopia. Yeah. I don't think that's a thing, but it just made sense when it came out of my head. <laughs> yeah. But judging from your responses to, to your writing, do you think that people identify uh, better with dystopias or utopias? Uh, you, dystopias are a lot easier to think about. And uh, in, in a lot of ways, uh, people like them a lot better because they, uh, um, they give us permission to uh, 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 abandon our responsibilities. Um, uh, if the world is going to hell in a handbasket uh, and there's nothing you can do about it, then great. You can just keep on keeping on, right? Um, Utopia comes with uh, this big mess of responsibilities that uh, uh, I, I think a lot of people want to avoid. And it's complicated, too. Um, there's, there's nothing simple about a utopia, um, and there's nothing complicated about a dystopia. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I try and write what, what, what are called heterotopias, things that are right in the middle. Um, and, and actually, one of the terms I love to apply to, to Stealing Worlds is that it's a pre-apocalyptic novel. Uh, it's about that, that moment in time where things could go either way. And we're living in exactly that kind of a time right now. Um, things could go to complete hell and destruction, 
or we could end up in a Tomorrowland kind of future. We have no idea which way it's going to go. But that is exactly the, the you know, the, the best uh, time to be writing about. Um, and that's the, the situation that my, my hero, Sura, finds herself in in, 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 the, in this book. She's just being yanked into the future with no idea which way it's going to go. I feel like that's the perfect place um, as an author to explore and um, play with what could be as opposed to choosing one or the other harshly to to convey a specific point, right? Like if you're somewhere in the middle, you're not saying exactly what's going to happen. You're saying these are all possibilities that I think people should think about based on what the game is currently, as opposed to saying this is what happened and this is the consequence. Yeah, and I don't think I need to warn people <laughs> I don't think people need to be warned anymore. Uh, we're all pretty much aware of um, the, you know, the terrible things that, that that could happen to us in our society and our planet. Um, uh, but uh, I think there is some value in encouragement right now. And, uh, uh, you know, it, if I could write a novel that didn't shy away from all the terrible possibilities, but left people optimistic at the end of it anyway, then I'd be pretty happy. And, and, and that's sort of the, 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 the trick for me, not to uh, cover up the, you know, the, the dire possibilities, but to, to, to show that we could still make it through um, despite all of that. I'd say you have to be an optimistic human um, or have, have an optimistic viewpoint on humanity in order to do that, because like at, at the end of the day, technology is just a tool we as humans use to communicate with each other or make our lives more easier uh, or do things that we as a physical person can't do with our human body. And so it, it, at, the end of, at the end of the day, it's always a human and humans being humans. So you have to, I feel, have to have some type of optimistic viewpoint on what humans do and why they do it to get to that point. Well, I'm a father, so I'm, I uh, have a moral obligation to be optimistic. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, at, at the same time, uh, well, maybe technology is legislation. You know, may, maybe uh, uh, social media was a terrible idea. Um, and Lady of Mazes, uh, which uh, came out in, I think, 2005, was all, all about social media. Um, uh, and, and maybe the technology of social media is um, uh, is doing awful things to you know to our culture, um, but maybe there's countervailing technologies. Uh, and for global warming, maybe we cannot come to political decisions ab about what the best thing to do will be. But maybe you know nuclear fusion will be developed in in, in two years, and maybe that will save us. Um, I'm not saying uh, we as humans don't have agency, but I'm saying that technology also has agency. We're sort of in a world of, uh, of, of agents, of actors of various kinds. Some of them are human, some of them are not human. Um, and we're all working together. Uh, in Stealing Worlds, the, uh, the non-human uh, actors uh, eventually wake up and start taking a, a hand in things. Uh, and that, of course, is me being uh, the wild-eyed futurist again. But, uh, um, but in a sense, uh, you know, everything that we introduce uh, from smartphones to uh, electric cars uh, has its own social impact, um, independent of uh, what our politics are. Yeah. Everything does. Even the microwave did. Yeah, exactly. The the trouble is that we can't uh, we can't know in advance what that's going to be. Um, in Lady Amazes, I, I I say it's like a roulette wheel. You, you you spin the wheel of technologies, and you know one comes up, um, but uh, its effect is completely random, and it also has um, a big family of, of of unruly relatives who also move in and uh, <laughs> you know join join the party and uh, for good or, or ill um, when you introduce um, cars you also introduce the traffic jam I'm not so, sure I agree 
100% on that one. I feel like you can know, or you can have a pretty good idea, at least on um, a portion of the influence that a technology will have on society. You're, you're For one, you're creating it for a reason. And undoubtedly, someone will always use it for things you didn't plan for, which will have unforeseen consequences, but you're going to know and are able to ponder and think about what's going to happen if te technology takes place and people start to then move forward. And the further you go into the future, the more money that gets, obviously. But I feel like there's there's something, there's some type of reasonable thought process that should be happening in the process of creating technology about the impact it has for the people who use it and how it may shape oh, things. You should be right. And I, I hope you're right. Um, but I'm not sure. Um, this is, however, the conversation we have to be having right now because so many things are happening at the same time. Um, uh, we're undergoing this paroxysm of change where you know uh, fossil fuels are about to go away uh, and our entire civilization has been basically built around them. Um, our, our politics is changing. The, the way we communicate is having a massive impact on everything from our individual relationships to, um, you know, international relations. Um, uh, and uh, uh, suddenly space flight is cheap and robots are coming. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, apparently next year somebody's going to start selling flying cars. So, <laughs> uh, so it all kind of happens at once in the 2020s. And we really should be ready for it. Um, I hope we can be. We just need a little bit more like the trickle down technology policy that we had, where like a lot of the stuff we're using now is like a, a byproduct of us trying to get to the moon. NASA went NASA went really hard in the paint, which is a phrase I hope you use in one of your novels. Recently. <laughs> but NASA NASA really went. NASA went to town and now we have GPS, we have memory foam, we have, I don't know, lots of stuff. And well, it, in, it, in fact, yeah, if you look at it, most of our uh, key technologies were government funded. The, the Internet's a good example. Um, uh, the GPS, uh, the list goes on and on. Um, mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, I'm not not necessarily a fan of the the Green New Deal as such, but I, I am a fan of the idea of, of massive investment in uh, uh, climate change mitigation and green technologies. But because I think there's uh, gigantic amounts of wealth to be created um, by going in that direction, um, this is the opposite of the alarmist view of um, uh, uh, global warming. It's the biggest business opportunity of the 21st century. It's and so it, big. <laughs> and it, the, the, the biggest technological opportunity. I mean, look at the advances in battery storage technology, uh, um, uh, wind turbines, uh, photovoltaics, and, and things like that that have happened just in the last few years. Um, it, the, the degree of change in... Uh, the cost of solar cells, for instance, is staggering. Um, and every single projection uh, made about the, the drop in cost of solar cells the last 10 years has been wrong, not just by a, a small percentage, but by factors of two or more. Um, change is happening uh, immensely quickly, and it's all beneficial change in, in, in that area. So, um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, uh, potentially really good stuff coming down the line. And I do feel that crypto, circling back, um, can be a major part of that. When you uh, look at, uh, uh, for instance, provenance technology, the ability to, to, to track coffee beans from where they're grown all the way to uh, your coffee cup, using a blockchain uh, to guarantee that uh, you know there isn't wastage or um, substitution and so on. Um, that's pretty amazing stuff. Um, but it, it also becomes a, 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 a human justice thing when you find out that the, the, the farmers are now able to get paid what they're worth because you, you can tell that, you know, yes, these beans were grown on their patch of land. Um, and magnify that by a million and you have uh, crypto touching um, everybody in one way or another in... Um, 
small but important uh, aspects of uh, uh, freedom and um, accountability. Uh, I think it's great. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better it's, myself. It's the right. vending machine that all the Tesla charging stations. I'll nickel and dime my way to a million. <laughs> I think you got something there. <laughs> money to be made. Well, yeah. Corey, you want to ask the trademark question or you, you got more questions? I've added. I introduced them. Go ahead. All right. Uh, in 10 words or less, can you describe Bitcoin? Um, a way of giving virtual objects some of the characteristics of physical objects. That's blockchain. That's blockchain. Uh, blockchain uh, is, is a way of um, uh, giving virtual non-physical things some of the characteristics of physical things like uniqueness, relative permanence, um scarcity the, scarcity exactly um it it actually it, it took me years to boil and I, and I think this is the reason why you asked that question it took me years to boil the technology down into that definition for myself of, of what blockchain is and what it does um but i'm pretty happy with it because um since i understand it that way uh it's been able to I've been able to connect the idea of, oh, yeah, so if you can have a unique digital logic, you can have a unique coin, but you can also have a unique um, vote, for instance, uh, a single vote. You can have um, uh, a certificate of ownership, provenance, all, all these things. All of a sudden, it makes sense because you've got um, uh, virtual things that, that have characteristics uh, that previously only physical things had. And that is the innovation. And it, it, it's a pretty cool one. How do you tackle the problem that there's the bounds are different? Like in the physical world, uh, there's bounds, like things expire. But in the virtual world, maybe they do, but it just takes a hell of a lot longer. So yeah. how do you... Yeah, it, it, it's because um, the, the kind of uh, reality that the virtual things has is more like um, a socially constructed reality. So, for instance, you take a, a, a thing such as president of the United States. You know, a physicist could not find a unique equation or a unique set of particles that are the president of the United States particle. Um, physically, there's no such thing. And yet there really is such a thing as a president of the United States um, who really does have an impact on the world because we all say so, right? We designate that person as having that identity, and it is so. And that's how Bitcoin works. The miners do this. Hmm. They, they all say that, yes, this, this Bitcoin um, exists or this Bitcoin has been transferred to uh, and it's the consensus reality that they create that um, that lends the uh, the realism to the to the Bitcoin. Um, and, yeah, and in that sense, it's just like um, our uh, social cons consensus reality, where we all vote and we say, "Well, as a result of this, this person is now the president of the United States." It's a fact, um, and it's a fact. Yeah. It's just as much of a fact as, you know, Paris being in France. It's just that it's not a physical fact. It's a social fact. So if you, if you realize that the bitcoins are kind of the social fact of computers <laughs> um, in a corresponding way, then it all makes sense. Mm. Of course, I'm sure there's going to be crypto math mathematicians out there who, who tell me I'm just flat out wrong in this. But it's the way I understand no, you're pretty right. I just scared myself to death. <laughs> I just scared myself to death, Corey, because if, if you put AI with blockchain, it's like, well, what if they come up with their own consensus? We're done. We're done. No, I'm kidding. Oh, well, that would be another <laughs> book of mine. Um... <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Go. Oh, wait, you probably already wrote it. You probably yeah, already wrote that'd, it. That'd be Ventus. That was 20 years ago. That was Ventus, yeah. Um... Jesus. <laughs> well, um, you go ahead and plug your book, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. Tell tell the people where to find all of your books. Well, probably Amazon, but 
Sure. Yeah. Uh, the, the the new book is called uh, Stealing Worlds. It's uh, out from uh, Tor Books, um, and uh, you can find it in all the good bookstores and online and in ebook form. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a gateway drug to the rest of my stuff. Uh, so uh, um, find it, enjoy it, and uh, there's a lot more. Um, uh, every everything from far future uh, steampunk um, pirate adventures to uh, um, uh, cyberpunk and a uh, uh, bunch of stories about a pathologically shy Ukrainian arms inspector who goes around uh, saving the world. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming but, on the show. I, I really enjoyed that the conversation and I, I've got a lot to think about from here. Um, you gave me a couple different uh, perspectives that I'd like to explore. Great. Uh, that's that's fantastic, and this was a lot of fun, guys. I'm pushing the, I'm yeah. pushing the buy your book button. Excellent. <laughs> I, I love to see that. <laughs>